We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Both pairs have, have spoken with each other and, uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a f-ing shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their f-ing houses for f-ing 10 years. Talk beaten by me in 1967. Beaten by me in 1987. Beaten up for a replay in 1988 are the 14 men to prevail in front of their loyal band of fans. The subs wait. The double has been achieved. It's Corks All Ireland. It's Corks here. The double in hurling and the double in football. So there you go, Conan, the double. The double was done in 1990 by Cork and they beat me for the first ever time, 67, 87 and a replay after 88. So I had lost four times in all Ireland finals to them, uh, or lost three times and drawn once and lost league games to them as well. Never beaten me, isn't that incredible? So to beat the team you'd never beaten before and do the double, and this double is for the first time ever um, as well because, you know, in the modern game, I think it was club teams that, that uh, it was done three times before, but I think it was club teams that represented the county back then. So the first time ever to be done by a county team, um, especially in the modern era, a phenomenal achievement. Yeah, double. There was a double-double, wasn't there, really, with the hurling as well. And, like, even if you, if you look after that 1990 team or the both teams who did that, like it hasn't obviously hasn't been done since, but provincial wise, it's only been done three times, twice by Cork and once by Dublin in 2013. Like, you know, that's a team winning hurling and football in their provinces. So shows how rare it is you have two powerhouse teams in hurling and football in the one county at yeah. the same time. Well, it does, yeah. I think Offaly were close in 1981. They had won the hurling and they lost the football to Kerry. They ended up winning the football um, in 82. So they were close um, back around that time as well. Um, but Teddy McCarthy, he was he he played it. He started both games. Um, like I mean, he'd be forever remembered in Cork for you know he won two. All, imagine winning two All Irelands in three weeks. <laughs> like that um like that man should never have to buy a pint again in Cork. <laughs> that's that's unbelievable, carry on. Yeah, Cork in nineteen ninety nine almost did it as well. Sean O'Halpine would have done it. So Cork won the Cork won the All Ireland hurling um on a really wet day against Kilkenny. They were weren't expected to win that one. And then they lost. Who do you who do you think they lost in nineteen ninety nine? Of course it had to be me that stopped Sean O'Halpine going down <laughs> in the same history um, as Teddy McCarthy. But that's it. Well, like, I mean, Jewel, it, it, to be honest, even though there was a, a big co- kind of controversy and, and talk about no Jewel players anymore, but there's an example from 91 in a Jewel County and 99 in a Jewel County, and they only had the one. Yeah, but like, but even just having successful Jewel teams, like, you know, at the same time, it's just, it's so, it's so rare and, when I was going through it, I assumed there might have been like a handy one in Ulster, like where Down had a good hurling team in the 90s and they won obviously the Ulsters, and, but they didn't even coincide either. And if you just look at the, the football double as well, like, we, you know, obviously it was well documented. It took 17 years then for Kerry to win back to back football all learnings. Like, it doesn't happen that often. Dublin are routine to do it since. Obviously, they've ruined it for everybody. But, you know, record putting together two all learning football titles is amazing and then the fact they were able to do it with Hurling as well it's just uh, well obviously it's never been done before yeah yeah Mead I suppose won two together just before Cork so the Rebbit, the, the county hurlers were in the stand uh, dressed in suits waiting for the second leg of the double to be done so I'm sure that was a strange one so yeah that's, it's just it's. I, I suppose the counties that could potentially do it now would be Galway it would probably be the top of the list Galway and Cork would be the two counties you would imagine would I was be thinking Dublin will be next <laughs> 
Yeah, Dublin would be in the shake-up probably because they're almost a guaranteed football. <laughs> guaranteed yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they've got 50% of it done automatically. Yeah, yeah. This rivalry though, Cork and Mead, like, I mean, this had this had reached kind of toxic levels. They had met in four All-Irelands, like I mentioned at the start of the show. 87, Mead won handy. Um, 88, they drew. Mead were lucky to draw. And Mead won the replay in a very, very rough, hard-hidden encounter. That's not on YouTube, unfortunately. And then the 1990 match, which we were um, watching. And there was also an ill-tempered, really bad, nasty National League semi-final. And that was in 1990 as well. So, like, people thought this 1990 final there was going to be war. And it didn't turn out like that at all. There was no real war in it, um, except for Colin O'Neill sending off. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it was funny. I was reading, um, Larry Tompkins said that uh, Billy Morgan, after they lost that league semi-final in 1990, like this is just another loss to Mead and another dirty match. Um, I think Niall Catalan got sent off. He says, Billy got down on his knees in the dressing room and prayed to almighty God that those bloody boys in the other dressing room would reach the All-Ireland final because we'll be there. And Tompkins says that was a turning kind of point of their season. Is is that unreal? Like, and to put that much back in, in a team as well, like you know, we'll be there. Like I could have really. <laughs> oh that. yeah, no, that was a nice line. That was a nice line. We'll be there. Let's just hope those losers will be will be there to join us. <laughs> yeah, let's hope they'll be there so we can spank their asses, basically. And like actually, Tompkins said in his speech afterwards, he's never met a man with so much self belief and determination and a fierce will to win as Billy Morgan. So probably sums up his effect and. I'd say like those those things stick with you as well. Like when you see a manager going down on his knees in the changing room, like, <laughs> you know, praying to God, like you know it is. It's it's very emotive, and I'd say it would drive you on in training. Yeah, so Colin O'Rourke said about the 88 um, replay. So this is when it got kind of toxic, like I was saying. So the first match, uh, me just got a draw. But they kind of thought Cork had roughed them up a little bit in that game because Cork had lost the 87 match against them. And O'Rourke said Dinny Allen left McLean's uh, semi-concussed. Niall Catalan uh, left Brian Stafford's semi-concussed. And he said he received one of the worst wallops on the football pitch when Barry Coffey caught him completely open. I think he had to spend a little bit of time in hospital. So Mead were rearing. Imagine pissing Mead off. Like Mead is not a team that you really want pissed off. So Mead were out for revenge in that replay in 88. And Cork knew it. Because Billy Morgan said in his book, he said, this was his message to the players. If there's a row, for the, if there's a row, the whole team should pile in. Not necessarily throwing digs, but backing each other up. But throw digs if you have to, right? <laughs> so so then uh, Jerry McEntee was sent off after six minutes uh, for hitting Nile Catalan. Um, in that game, because, you know, it was just simmering over the edge. And, and Meade won it with 14 men. Right. So, like, I mean, Billy Morgan never forgives himself for this because his message to the Cork players then, which uh, like at, in real time, it's not a bad message. His message was to play football now, no retaliation, no piling in, you know, because they had a man extra and he didn't want to get sucked into this kind of messing with Mead and, you know, get a man sent off themselves, which sounds like a sensible thing to do. But then he said in his book, he said it was the biggest mistake of my football life. Mead roughed us up afterwards and the boys didn't respond in kind because of my instructions it was like giving them guns without ammunition so interesting stuff isn't it that's really really interesting especially like you know if if they're thinking of me as a team that they have to be ready for that confrontation with and then suddenly it is taken away from them then it's probably hard for them to deal with and you know you're like if you're if you're taking a belt off a player or being roughed up and you're not reacting it's Oh, it's, it's hard like you know if you're not reacting in any sort of way even with a shoulder or whatever else I could see where he was coming from because obviously we've got the man extra but it is interesting because in uh, there's a book by Adrian Russell Double Double and apparently when Larry Tompkins came down to Cork him and Shea Fahey had sort of this big me for beginners induction for the whole Cork squad and it was like because they did last team me minors in 1980 and they knew all about them from their Kildare days and Basically, it was like, lads, forget about what you think of Kerry v. Cork. This isn't a rivalry. Like, Meath are a different animal altogether. And and the whole thing was them trying to get them ready for playing Meath and what they were going to expect. So it seemed to be drummed in to Cork from, like, late 80s that they have to be physical to match Meath. And, like, 
you know, you can see where, where those confrontations came from. Yeah, because Cork were a big team um, as well. Like, I mean, there were no shrinking violets. Some of the Cork players after 88 refused to travel to the Monday banquet, which was a crazy kind of thing at the time. I was at one in 1996 uh, when Mead um, drew with Mayo and we were after beating Kerry. And I think, the, I think that could have been the last year. Maybe it was coming to the end. So all four teams would meet for a dinner in the Burlington Hotel after the, on the Monday after the All-Ireland. Like, such a mad thing to do. Like, one team is on a high celebrating. The other team is, you know, completely uh, distraught. And then they have to go meet each other and have dinner. Anyway, it's silly. They don't do it anymore. But some of the Cork players refuse to travel, um, refuse to go to that. And then, even more incredibly, later on that year, they both went on team holidays and they ended up in the same resort. <laughs> the GA holiday package being exposed there. <laughs> Sending them off on the same deal. That happened with the Galway and Waterford hurlers. I think that happens a bit, actually. Yeah, they obviously get a deal on Groupon. <laughs> Just booked them all in straight away. I forget about the rivalries. I, like, the team banquet thing, part of me actually thinks it's it's nice almost a shame that it's gone it's a bit of a sportsmanship just you know whatever happened on the field has happened and we're all just the same amateur people at the end of the day let's, let's talk about it now like, you know, because I think uh, did you mention it was only after John Cairns had, had passed away I think you have in your notes there like, you know, that they actually got together again uh, as a where both teams got together again and you know that's that's a shame that it brings something like that to bring them together because although they're big rivals and, and obviously one team's heartbroken they're still they're still the same like they have a whole lot in common actually they started talking yeah apparently they're all great friends now but it did take that funeral Martin O'Connell said the thing that changed it all was John's death um, unfortunately it took a death to break the ice between Mead and Cork that put it all into perspective and apparently they're really good friends like I mean I think the whole Mead team travelled down to that and you know I, I think the differences were put aside at that stage look at the end of you're right like and they both won two All-Irelands at that time like I think it was Larry Tompkins said if if either one wasn't there you could have been looking at four in a row well Dublin beat Mead in 89 but Cork were in four finals in a row like I mean they would have been confident potentially of winning at, you know maybe a three in a row or you know being remembered as an unbelievable team if Mead hadn't been around who were an exceptional um, team as well but anyways the, one, the big talking point from the game is the Colin O'Neill sending off and I wouldn't mind Colin O'Neill had been playing well. It's funny he's called Colin O'Neill playing in the full forward line for, for Cork. Um, he was do, he was playing well. I don't know what he was getting frustrated for. He, he was after being fouled a, a few times by, by Mick Lyons. He was getting on ball. He'd rattled the crossbar. Like, I mean, uh, why did he do what he was doing for? And Mick Lyons didn't even do anything major to him. Like, he just looked for, the, you know, the usual, give, give us the ball back. We've, you fouled the ball. I want the ball to take my free. Yeah, it was. It was, and as you say, it was the one ball that McLean's had won. Colin O'Neill was was flying. You know, yeah. he had that chance. That he rattled the crossbar. He he won the freeze that they had tapped over. You know, he was looking sharp, and then like it wasn't even like McLean's got the better of him in that duel. O'Neill was out in front again. He, he fouled the ball. Him. Yeah, yeah, fouled the ball, and ah, and it was like oh, so stupid as well because the ball was right. He just sort of tossed the ball away, so everyone's looking at the two of them because the balls are, and he points them, <laughs> you know, for no reason. And in fairness to McLean's, he barely reacts he sort of feels his jaw and carries on and it was you know it would look like a tough a tough punch and for Lions just to not even like throw himself to the ground or not not even see his head go back or anything it really showed that he was made of tough stuff but also it had me thinking is Mick Lyons you know judged a bit harshly I think we're always seeing him as this psychopath I think somebody called him that in the Meave team before how lucky they were to have him but like all these games I've watched now, these classic games, Mick Lyons seems to be the one getting hit because people are ready for him. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. The the matches you've seen, but like, I mean, look, they both got uh, their names taken early on in the game, whatever went on off the ball. we do, I'd say Mick Lyons was so cute. He'd be a bit yeah. like, if a tiger wants to kill you, you won't see the tiger. If he wants to kill you, he'll uh, you won't see him coming. <laughs> so maybe Lyons yeah. does all his, all his damage off the, off, the, off the ball. But I think you're right. And the way he walked away without even pretending that, that he had been punched. Now, I don't know, was it a haymaker of a punch? But the, the reality was, even in those days, if that wasn't a, set, a straight sending off, he'd already been put into the book. So, like, there was no question Colin O'Neill um, had to go off. And then it was funny, Lyons won a ball a minute later after Colin O'Neill went off and the whole crowd booed poor Mick Lyons. The poor man had done nothing. <laughs> he'd done nothing. His man picked the ball up off the ground and then punched him. <laughs> Lyons didn't even fall to the ground or anything yeah. foul him. 
You didn't do anything. And yeah, I don't know. It's funny because it just reminded me of a story um, that I heard about Bernard Flynn in training. Like, you know, as me, we're getting back to, you know, this All Ireland winning form. And apparently, Bernard Flynn turned around at one stage and punched McLean's and busted him open. And apparently, Lyons just shouted, That's, we need more of this fucking shit. We need it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, Bernard Flynn tried to apologize to him in the showers afterwards. And he was sort of like, For what? It's only a bit of blood. And he was delighted, you know, that the, the young the whippersnapper in the corner was now toughing it up as well. Jesus, absolutely brilliant. I love Mick Lyons. Mick Lyons, have, we have to get Mick Lyons on the shoulders, no doubt about that. I may pick, I can't find an All-Ireland on YouTube that Mead won that I can get Mick Lyons on for. Although there's a list of Mead players that um, that you would be looking for um, off that. But Mick Lyons probably definitely on top of the list. All right, we'll leave it there, Conan, because Cork captain that day, Larry Tompkins, joins us on the line now. Larry, we were talking about Colin O'Neill getting sent off. I suppose he had to go, really. <laughs> well, I suppose it was uh, fairly blatant, but <laughs> to me, he, he just walked away as it was. But, you know, it was kind of in the front of everybody. So he... Um, wasn't much of a jab, but um, look, um, I'm sure Colin had no crimes about being sent off, you know what I mean? It was just yeah, spoiled the moment, spoiled the moment thing. But it was just, do you know what? It was just an awful pity because uh, Colin was having one of those games that he looked like he was heading for, you know, Shea. He had a brilliant game that day, and uh, I'd say it was either him or, or, or Shea. It was just one of those days he was just winning everything that was coming into him. And, um, I'm sure Mick was glad to see him uh, seeing him uh, sent off because uh, Mick was getting a bit of a run around, I think, at the time. Well, that was the thing. That's why I couldn't believe it, that how Colin O'Neill was even getting frustrated. Usually you might do something like that if you're playing bad, but he was flying it. You would have thought it was Mick Lyons was going to be the one getting frustrated. Yeah, I suppose. You know what it was with Colin? Like, Colin was a very quiet fella, and, like, you know, for a long number of years he was finding it difficult to make, to make the team and stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know what? <laughs> Uh, it was only that year really that he thought he was on an ATF but he's kind of been on and off for a good few years after that and wasn't really kind of uh, I suppose falling out of favour and I suppose just got a little bit um, lost his confidence and but you know regained that confidence through the Munster final that year he had a hell of a game which a lot of people don't realise he's kicked 11 points in Munster final like which is some performance like but Colin right. was one of these players like Colin was one of these players like there was a, he was an absolute gifted player, like you know what I mean. He'd 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 put feet like, and you know he was comfortable on board, like, and uh, you know a good man for the big day. And I'd say, really, what it was was like, um, I'd say he was so psyched up for Mick, uh, come high, high, hell on high water, like it didn't matter whether it was physical or what way it was. Like Callum was there to win the battle, and uh, that's the way he kind of, I'd say, it was just spontaneous, just that kind of a situation. It was just. A spur in the moment thing, and uh, and uh, just totally unexpected for Colin because <laughs> if anything, uh, you know, people would deem him to be a, a, a bit of a teddy bear down here, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. You made an yeah. interesting comment. I was reading is that nobody sat on the seats at half time after that, and nobody went over to console Colin. No, look, it was. I suppose that's how focused the team was, and uh, um, whose idea was, was that? Kind of, well, like look, it was an awful build-up. Like there was a lot of, I suppose, a lot of uh, hatred or whatever way you want to put it. With me in Cork over a number of years, and uh, um, Mead had kind of come out on the upper hand in '87, '88, controversially after replay, and you know we were, you know, we played them in the league semi-final. It turned out nasty. It was a, you know, Mead beat it again, and uh, a lot of. Uh, a lot of nastiness that day as regards like a lot of you know a lot of confrontation a lot, a lot of battles and a lot of physical battles and a lot of I suppose um, come over the again a lot uh, you know a lot of sting to it and um, I think that after that league semi-final that year in 1990 um, I think Cork were in a good place like to play me the next time because I think it really focused everybody and I, I think what you're seeing at half time when Colin was sent off was just that it was just a spontaneous thing look we have half the job done let's get out there and you know they couldn't wait to get back out there again and you know everybody was up and it was a very unusual thing in this dressing room like nobody was sitting down nobody was consoling Colin 
you know, he had been sent off. I don't think some people didn't even realise that he had been sent off. That's how focused they were. Uh, it was a case of just trying to get out there as quick as possible and and get the next 35 minutes done and, and, and beat them, you know. Right. You mentioned that league semi-final and um, I was reading uh, Billy Morgan got down on his knees in the dressing room and, and prayed to a mighty God that those boys in the other dressing room would reach the All-Ireland final because we'll be there. Yeah, well, there was a lot of uh, a lot of anger in that game, and a lot of, uh, as I say, off the ball stuff uh, all over the field, and it left a sour taste. And there was, you know, there was battles going in at halftime uh, through the old tunnel. That time it was the old old dressing rooms in there. You know, it was uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of bad feeling there that day, and the guys like. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think uh, if, it, if it was the day this car woke up to the fact like that, you know, we 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 needed to beat Mead. That was the that was the day that woke us up. You know. Yeah, exactly. And like I mean, because Mead kind of had accused Cork of being overly physical in '88, and then Mead were overly physical in the in the replayed game, and then were Mead the aggressors then after that because they thought maybe this was the way to beat Cork. Yeah, I suppose my idea was a game like this. Look, you know, we should have won that game. It wasn't a case that, you know, we, we you know, uh, I suppose with the help of Suru in relation to his refereeing and, and you know, we we all blame referees at times, but like, you know, he, I think the free, like, uh, one time was up and he told me there was the last kick of the game. He still, he still played on three minutes afterwards. Jesus, know? right. Like how, amazing, uh, you, know, you know, amazing. Like he told me, like this, uh, you know, time was up. It was the last kick, and uh, I put the ball over the bar, and we went to fight ahead. And Dave Barry jumped up on my shoulders, and thinking the game was over, and he let the come out from McQuillan and she, he cut the kick out cleanly, and went to fist the ball to Tony Nation, and uh, the ball ended up over the sideline, and he still let play go on. And from that time, he had to kick the ball from the ground from the side of the kick, and. Uh, Ball went into the square and the melee, and he, he gives a four-star free, like, you know. Right. Okay. And, and incredible, you know. If you've seen the scenes afterwards, it was just a culmination of, you know, what was he, what was he saying to me when he told me it was the last kick of the game, you know? Yeah, that you doesn't know? make sense. After the replay, some of the Cork lads would, wouldn't go to the banquet. Yeah, so look, there was a lot of, uh, there was a, there was a lot of bitter feeling there, and uh, you know, I suppose it. Uh, you know, Mead, look, Mead were a hell of a team and, and uh, Cork were a hell of a team and two giants came together. A lot of controversy arose from from the first day we played them in 87 right through and um, um, I suppose both teams were desperate to win because, you know, Kerry had long periods of time and hadn't learned for so long. Mead, probably similar, but for some reason they took it out on each other and I don't know whether it was a culmination that uh, that did myself and Shea spur it on then as much because we were from Kildare and you know we knew the Midlands well like and I was very friendly and still very friendly with all the Midlands so um, I don't know if that's the way it was but look I always say like this you know my other and final in 89 was great we beat me all but if we didn't beat Mead like those that other and final wouldn't have meant as much you know so right right uh, I get you and we, we, we you know it's like it's like it's like carving down here and we can't beat Kerry like you know what I mean you, you know what I mean Kerry are the big team in Munster and you must beat them like and you know particularly beat them down in Killarney like so you have to beat them and, and uh, that that shows a, a good bit of guts to do that and I think you know, if there's a, the, the big teams are in front of you there to be beat and you know if, if they didn't beat me it, um, you know Beat somebody else even to win two in a row, it wouldn't have been the same. You know what I mean? So no, I think uh, I think beating Mead and beating them with fourteen men, and particularly the way Colum O'Neill was just me going back to Colum. Like Colum, you know, he was he was having such a hell of a game. Like and to for to lose him and then and still to go on and win. So that was even uh, a better feeling, you know. Yeah. In in fairness, they they left Mick Lyons as the spare man, and you were very clever in that you never kicked any ball down on top of him. You played the corners, Paul McGrath. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Like, Mick stayed right behind. Like, I was playing yeah. forward. Like, Jesus, like, Mick kind of stood right behind me. And, uh, but Mick is, you know, Mick was a hell of a player, like a fantastic player. But I suppose his main thing was like this. You know, he, 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 used to, he was able to blot out guys. That was his big thing. And I suppose when he, when he seen himself, you know, he was kind of marking nobody. He might have found it hard to kind of adjust, you know. So 
but um, yeah, like uh, look, we 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 had a, I suppose there's an old saying like our half back line that they were superb, our midfield was superb, and that was really our launching pad really throughout the game, you know. Yeah, were you carrying an injury into the game? I was mentioned in commentary. Yeah, he... I, 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 I had a calf muscle injury, yeah. Um, and then ended up like doing my crochet then with about 15 minutes ago. So, right. I said, I said it's amazing because a few minutes before that, Lord Mick McCarthy went down with a knee injury. He went down, and, and Dr. Con Murphy took him off. So, geez, when it happened to me, it was just a collision with Martin O'Connell. I just came out the wrong way, and that was it. But, um, you know, popped up off the ground fairly quick, but look, your momentum keeps you going, and you know, not earning final, you just you, you just uh, try to get to the captain line. You know, maybe if I had him in the first fifteen minutes in the game, and uh, actually I wouldn't have lasted. You know, right, right, okay. So it was just a collision with Martin O'Connell because I was reading. The... Yeah, it was just just a collision. That was it. Oh, Martin right. is a hell of a player and a good, honest, good player. It was just two of us, you know, went to the hell bent for a ball just underneath the Hogan stand. You know, he was just getting there that little bit later and Martin was just getting a bit first and I just tangled. We just kind of tangled and I kind of went one way, but my knee decided to go another way. Right, because now Catalan has a theory on why you got so so many injuries towards the end of your career. He said he put himself through yeah. ferocious ferocious punishment and you'd wonder maybe if all that um, effort shortened his, his own career a bit. The, the training you did the, with all the training oh, yeah, um, the training you did kind of came back on you towards the end maybe with the injuries yeah like I don't know look my, I done I done two crochet ligaments I done that one in 1990 I was making a great recovery back in I was back really playing well, well again in 93 and my second one went in the club again I, look people say that but I, I don't believe I just think it's just I mean, damn bad luck just the the, yeah. the odd incidents that happen like I think that doesn't matter if what type of thing it was just the the incident the, the second time I had just went up high for a ball awkwardly and came down kind of with my knee kind of in a twisted position and landed and, and severed the, the other the other knee so look uh, I just think it can be just unlucky the way it can just happen and uh, um, that's my own opinion you know what I mean it's just some people I, I had a brilliant run up right up to 1980 I, I had really no injuries and uh, then uh, all of a sudden, then uh, you know, I got struck down with a lot of them, you know. So, but I suppose all the stories you hear about you with the training, like you're training before, you know, in the almost like what you'd hear teams doing now, training, doing weights in the morning. You used to cycle the Mitchell's town. Is that true? Like you used to do all sorts yeah, of training. Yeah, like you so look, I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was uh, rehabilitation as well. Like you know, I'd gone in a good few times for rehab in Lily Shalley three weeks in Old Trafford and treatment there as well on, on another occasion. So like, look, I. I I got a good bit of experience from being in, in, a, in these kind of professional places and uh, you know I had a kind of a good team in relation to how to maybe prepare and, and, and predict coming back from an injury like you know what I mean? right. so um, look uh, I tried to look everybody tries to get the best on themselves and that's all I was trying to do it was you know I used to get on with a lot down to the Marduk and kick a lot of footballs and just general things that you wouldn't kind of you go training collectively with a team you know what I mean everybody has kind of certain weaknesses and a lot of those weaknesses you don't really work at training so like yeah. it's very important like, to be able to go out there and try to kind of I suppose trying to improve on the on, on those areas and as I said you, you have an hour and a half at training you know what I mean? You don't, you don't get to do those things. So it's important, like the guys, kind of, you know, put in that bit extra. You know. Yeah. No, I think that's that's true for for any era. You used to give out to Billy Morgan, telling him the training wasn't hard enough. You said I'd do it. Be, I'd do training, training like this before my breakfast. <laughs> well, uh, look, uh, I just felt like this. You know, when I joined Cork, like you know, Cork are a hell of a team and. Like one thing we call even to now, nowadays people will be questioning this and but Cork always have will always and will always have great players but like I suppose the, the little bit of thing that you'd be a bit worried about them is that just that bit of hardness and that mental toughness that you really need when it comes down in a in a battle like and uh, that comes from like from preparing doesn't it and, and to being together and really working hard and, and you know look uh, I known Billy in America and look uh, it was just a a comment I made like that I just felt like that um, training wasn't really you know it wasn't that it wasn't that hard like, you know what I mean so we just needed to step it up because if we were going to beat Kerry you're going to beat Mead 
you know, there was no way to Nancy and Nancy down around with us. You had to get down and guys needed to come into training. There's a big commitment now. You you guys picking in any county, but picking Cork, they're coming from every angle and distances and it's a big county and you're committing there. Like guys are coming up there from West Cork as an hour and a half, two hours drive, same going back down. Jeez that was a fucking that was a good you know? Yeah. No, that's what you want. That's what you want. Come here, maybe this will be a, a, not a fair question to ask you, but like, I mean, without yourself and Shea Fahey transferring to Cork, like, well, my opinion is that Cork wouldn't have won all, wouldn't have won all Ireland. Like, it was some luck for Cork that the two Kildares, two, two of the best players that's ever played for Cork came from another county. Well, maybe they, maybe they might have won I don't know. She never know. Look, um, you know, I hope I, I, I could do something and, and, uh, you know, people ask me what did uh, if there was any one thing uh, that stood out to contribute to Cork, and I'd always say like, look, I just thought I just up the intensity of training, and in fairness to the likes of you know Nigel Callan in particular, you know Conor Conan, you know Teddy McCarthy, Shea these guys were ended up good leaders behind us, and really, you know, they they really got behind the bus then and drove it on, you know what I mean? So. You know, it doesn't take one. It's you know, you need a few behind you, and you need a few good hard leaders. And you know, that's what that's what we. You know, if if there was anything that I contributed, it was just to try and, I suppose, just to try and get the level of training to be at a good intensity. And you know, it's better to be going two nights a week of training than be going at four doing nothing. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. You know, true. like people forget, like it's it's all about quality. Like you know what I mean? And. I even think, like, you know, to even the modern day, like, you know, teams tend to maybe go overboard collective training and part times are coming in four and five nights a week and you just wonder, like, you know, what are they doing, like, in a lot of those nights because, you know, you get fed up with one another and you get, you know, you get a bit stale and, you know, it's it's important, like, to the training sessions, you have an appetite and it's, uh, you know, that you're going there and the quality of the session is good and, you come away there knowing like that it's worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. What's what's the relationship like with the Kildare support now? Is there a bit of slagging, or would they would would they be? I don't know. Kind you, know of... you know, you know, I've got massive support from Kildare, and both myself and Shay when we were playing here in Cork, like this, Jesus, they were the they were the first messages that were they were coming to us all the time, wishing us the best of luck. So, I I think that you know, I think at the time when I left, uh, you know, talking to my own back like this. You know all those Kildare players and all the clubs and all the the the, the people knew like this. You know things were at a bad end in Kildare and there were you know things weren't ran right and and uh, you know I gave it 110 percent for Kildare. I never missed a training session with them. And even though it's like that time you'd be going along, maybe there was only 12 or 15 people training. Like, you know? Yeah. Were you were you as like, good a player with Kildare or did you take your game to a new level with Cork? I don't need luck. I came on the Kildare team when I was very young, and um, you know, you, 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 I suppose you develop, and there's no doubt in that. But I suppose I've always felt like I, I, I had the ability, and uh, but I needed to work on things. I think a big turning, uh, a big turning factor for me was, I suppose, educating myself, and, and, and with the help of a few people, in particular Dermot early there from Roscommon, Lord Merson. You know, Dermot was over in the army there in, in the core and he kind of guided me in relation to um, you know with with two guys that opened up a gym in this and I kind of joined that and really kind of that was a, I was only 17 at that time and that was a big help to me in relation to kind of getting physically stronger and and then my, I suppose heading to New York um, where you have to kind of stand on your own two feet uh, away from home you know um, I was only 21 and and then playing football out there then, uh, you know, there wasn't too many uh, the referees blowing the whistle, so yeah, you, have to to, you have to be able to mind yourself. And that time in the 80s, like, it was, you know, it was a hell of a football uh, games in New York that time. Like, there was, you know, eight and 10,000 people turning up to Gilly Park every Sunday. Really? Like, yeah, like, incredible. Like, uh, like, well, what you had was, I suppose, similar to me, I wasn't the only person that was heading to New York. It was the place to go and, there was stacks of players going over there every week and every day and sure all the teams were all the teams were good they, were, they had good quality players like, and um, uh, the standard of football was high and um, 
of course, whether you played football or you played, or if you didn't play football or didn't play hurling, so you went to Gaelic Park every Sunday because it was the meeting place for the Irish. It was the connection yeah. for a job. It was a connection to, you know, get maybe get sorted with an apartment or whatever. So, you know, every Sunday you arrived in, you wouldn't know who you'd meet. You know what I mean? It was like home from home, and it was, there was incredible crowds there. Like it was just one of those kind of, you know, there was a three or four year period that time. Like we won. Four New York championships in a row, like it was, it was never done before from eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was a golden period. And Donegal, believe me, had a, you know, at that time, you know, people were saying, ah, you're bringing some of the players from Ireland or whatever, but it was never the case with Donegal because we had a very good office over there and they were living over there and. You know, they're from actually from all different counties, and there was a good selection from Cork and good selection from even from Down, Wicklow, Kildare. There was a few. So, and what what was your what was your plan going over there, Larry? Were you emigrating for good, and then you just got an offer to come back to Ireland to Cork, or you know, how did that work? No, out? it was no, it was. I'm bringing another book now, uh, Gollum, uh this year, and um, it should be out now in the summer. Please God, us. I know I might be put back now with the circumstances that's, that we're all encountering at the moment, but um, okay, it, it was a simple thing, and, and, and uh, I suppose there was a number of best with Donegal from Cork, from Castlehaven, actually, uh, the club I play with now. Um, there was four left from Castlehaven came with Donegal over, the two Collins is Martin Amani and Martin Connolly, and of course, you know, from one team to another, you'd be playing matches and you'd be talking about home and I suppose over a few years and uh, they decided they were going to head back home to try and seek to win a county with Castlehaven and it started as a joke really then geez, you should come over and play with us or you won't be going back to Calair now after the conservation that you left and all this so that's how it started as a joke and it, I suppose the joke was there for a few months and then it started gathering momentum and look it so I just said look I hadn't been home for that time for nearly three years and I um just wanted to kind of see their mother and father and stuff like that. So um I said to what what the Toulouse go over and play with Castle for the summer and come back again. So look the rest of history, that's how it happened. <laughs> you know? well, it was a great little so, story. We'll we'll look forward to reading it in your book, Larry. So um Yeah, it, sure look, listen, um, you know what I mean, there were great times and look there were look you go from playing football or, or, or playing teams and I suppose I was lucky I I, I, I ended up in vocation school for a week and I went to Blessman and um, then Kildare and then Donegal, New York and Cork so look I'm a kind of a mixed up kid but um, <laughs> look it was um, I met a hell of a lot of good people great people great players and uh, you know great players that never even you know contested the Leinster final the Munster final whatever it was like I played with players in, in, in New York who were as good as players I ever played with you know yeah, and um, you know some players, some players don't don't get opportunities that other players get, and by winning all Ireland doesn't mean mean to that you're special. You know what I mean? There's a lot of special players out there that never get the opportunity. Yeah, well that's true. Well, listen, you've done very well considering you had to overcome uh, Kerry and Munster, and then you had to contend with Mead and a couple others then in the All Ireland series. So, like, I mean, four in a row. Like, I mean, it was it was a super super achievement coming on the back of Kerry dominance. Anyways, ah yeah. So look, you know, there were magic days and magic moments, and uh, you know, in order to achieve that, you have to have a you know a really good spot and. Uh, you know, Cork were lucky. We we had an abundance of a lot of good, a lot of great players. You know. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Larry. Thanks very much for taking the time for us. I'll let no you go bother. there. You're welcome. Thanks. Come here, I want you to talk us through the goal you scored in the county final after 15 seconds. I want you to tell me when you had goal on your mind. Yeah, you've probably had a few 15 seconds experiences yourself. <laughs> So Cork 11 points, Mead 9 points and it's fair to say Colin this wasn't a classic by any means. I think it was a situation where the rivalry dictated that it was always going to be cagey, um, defences were on top, it was hard hitting, an awful lot of mistakes, it was it was a bit, you know we've kind of been analysing when football changed, this was more into the 80s, 70s realm of just kicking it on up there and hoping it'll win it. 
Yeah, and it was especially frustrating from me's point of more view. More from me, yeah, more from me than Cork. Yeah. Uh, and I can't believe they were they were in it in any way in the first half because they just every single ball like there was just no thoughts put into it. So much of it went out over the end line. Um, a lot of the time there weren't even players there. Like the full forward line had drifted out and they were just kicking it in over their heads anyway. And yeah, it was it was um it was actually quite a painful watch at times. Yeah. You know, especially because at one stage I think uh, Beggy just played, it's like stabbed this lovely ball to Bernard Flynn and Flynn put it over. He done made him put it over on his left and it's like yeah, I'll do that more. Like you know that works and just didn't look half the time and they didn't care. They just looked no, it up. There. That was a, that was actually I remember that because I put it into into my notes. That was Martin o, or that was Martin O'Connell who usually launches it, put a lovely ball in front of Bernard Flynn and mm. just before that a decent ball went into. Brian Stafford and he kind of half punted it over off the outside of his boot yeah. and they were the only two good balls like poor Colin O'Rourke Catalan was getting the better of him but sure he was been given 70-30 balls against him all the time like I, I was just looking at it because uh, O'Rourke kind of started getting on top coming up to half time and he caught a couple of great balls and I was just thinking imagine Colin O'Rourke got the kind of diagonal balls that were in you know that were given in the game now like I mean it's crazy some of the stuff they were expecting him to win it, it was and I, again just, just no thought in, in how to use him properly there. it's funny you say that because remember he was we, we did the 93 game and he was co-coms and there was a couple of like bad shots that Derry and Cork both had that day but he was like that's a great ball <laughs> but, but they were sort of they were coming diagonally and coming at a nicer angle you know than the he was getting high balls onto the end line like you know where he was uh, trying to catch yeah. going over it was it was poor and the two the two points that you mentioned there from Stafford and, and Flynn, like there was only thirty seconds between them both and you know, they were well well able to do it. And actually one of the most annoying things then for me was that they started rejigging the full forward line as if that was the problem. Like, you know, when you move Colin Rourke into the centre and Flynn to the other wing and it was like it was everything outside the full forward line was the problem. See, I think in a way now Cork played a little bit better. Cork uh, Tompkins and Dave Barry dropped into midfield and their two corner forwards came seemed to be getting a lot of ball on the forty five and they were isolating Conor O'Neill in on McLean's and that seemed to be working. But they seemed to 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 play a more structured style or a, yeah. a, a better a better footballing style I think you're right I'm like sure how many times then did you see like Paul McGrath you know s- swinging dummies and Mick McCarthy coming out deep and getting ball Larry Tompkins went very deep to get ball like, they got the ball into hands of players who could hurt who could hurt me and that, that they worked that through the lines like you know they got Colin Willey ball points in the front where Mick Lyons couldn't just maul him you know, they, they worked to their strengths, whereas I think that that, that was Meade's downfall. They didn't. Yeah, no, it definitely was. And you wonder why Meade, like, yeah, did O'Rourke in there, but Jesus, look at the, the, when you see Flynn and Stafford, what they could do with good ball. Maybe there's an element of saying, I'm just getting rid of this because if I don't, I'll be absolutely clobbered. I'm not saying they're afraid. I'm just saying, get it down out of the way. Don't get caught in possession, you know, and and it seems to me, I'd say O'Rourke probably messaged them is, let's get it in some way rather than not get it in at all yeah I was actually thinking I wrote it down like this is one of the last times where it's like you know that whole boy kick the ball on tails and wheel like you know it's up to us then to win it yeah and you know rather than not giving us ball and that, that like that was taken to the extreme no in fairness I watched the Derry V down 94 first round and again the ball's just being moved so quickly that was like the ball was a bit better there but like that idea that you're saying about players not being caught in and out the pitch and not dallying on it like there definitely was still that in 94 where the boys got the ball and they turned and kicked it straight away yeah did you notice the new rule um, in this game so if you're fouled yourself you could go off your hands and if you weren't the person that was fouled you had to go off the ground yeah and like actually there's a couple of times like it's like you know me especially slowed it down because if like they, they got fouled coming out of the fence and they could have just moved it quicker, but they've dropped it for somebody coming behind them, and then the person is setting up then on the ground whilst you know Cork are retreating back and yeah yeah there was a couple of times like where Shafai just plucked the ball then from a free kick of Meaves and it meant nothing then Meaves trying to win that ball and come out from defence. It's a weird one that that must have been just for that year because I I like remember Keith Barr and all these back then in in ninety two that rule wasn't there in ninety two I don't remember I thought all frees were taken off the ground then. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure actually. No, like it, it just um, it seemed to slow down anyway when they did put it on the ground. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. So it was I think what was it? It was six points to five at half time, and uh, Cork obviously had the man down. And you're thinking, Jesus, like I mean, this is going to be a handy enough one for me because. The, the, but the big mistake they made. Oh, before we get into the big mistake Mead made in the second half, what about the halftime analysis and entertainment? So Declan Nerney, Declan Nerney from Long. Uh, played two songs so they, like I mean this is like bloody the Super Bowl halftime entertainment and it was shots of the crowd and they were all enjoying uh, Declan Nerney if anyone's listening to this that hasn't seen it go on and if you, if the only thing you do because the match wasn't great just watch the halftime um, analysis and entertainment it's a classic it's just Ireland in the 19 in, in 1990 <laughs> the, the, the halftime coverage was about 60 or 70 percent Declan Nerney and about 30 or 40 percent analysis <laughs> and yeah you had charlie mulgrew and martin carney charlie mulgrew looked like he'd just been pulled out of a ditch he didn't even fix his collar and he was reading off his notes uh, michael lester um introduces declan ernie he says the first longford man for a long time to play in crow park <laughs> brilliant brilliant stuff yeah, and uh, like Charlie Mulgrew wearing like a, a Christmas jumper as well that like your your yeah. mom would have made it for you or something. And then like your Martin Carries is looks a bit more highbrow. Looks like a, a lecturer's big jumper, but both of them wearing their big woolly jumpers and a handy handy half time for Michael Lester, who's just only there for 30-40% of the time and then he's passing over to Charlie Mulgrew who's just blatantly reading off his notes he's holding his notes up to his face and, and reading them out yeah I think it was or Martin Carney said it wasn't a roundhouse punch it was just a, it was just a little jab like I mean I don't think he was making a, a case for him getting sent off but geez, in fairness Colin O'Neill was distraught it was just a rush of blood to the head and um, he went and that was it but then amazingly Mead had Mick Lyons as the spare man and Mick Lyons can be seen all off shot, standing in his full back position with 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 uh, Paul McGrath and Mike McCarthy and these forwards buzzing out around in front of him. So it was like it was fourteen against fourteen. Like I always think it's a terrible idea making a defensive minded player your spare man. Like it's just his his natural inclination is always going to be to protect the goals, even when there's nothing on. It's always a just in case mentality. And like, yeah. yeah, I remember like I got so much slagging. Like one of my first games was scary. It's like a, coming as a naughty person. I was playing in defence, but we were trying to push up. We had a man down. And we were trying to push up, but I wouldn't leave the spare man back because it was like, well, but he's a free man back here in front of the goals. But they were trying to just put on a press, and I wouldn't leave the full. <laughs> so I was fucking everything up by just staying back. And then afterwards, it was like you know the naughty who wouldn't vacate the goals, like and take a chance. And that there is that sort of mentality there. Like McLean's is is going to go back and just protect the goals just in case. Yeah, and Cork used their heads in fairness, like, I mean, they kicked nothing into him. Like, I mean, that would have been a big mistake that, you know, could have been made back in 1990. And they played the corners. They kept it well away from them. Like, I mean, I could say Cork couldn't believe their luck with the way Mead played the spare man. Yeah, absolutely. And they didn't they didn't give uh, Cork, or they didn't give Cork any questions, Mead. Like, you know, like Cork didn't have to bring anybody back. They didn't no. have to worry about anybody hurting him I think one time McLean's came surging through the centre once and that was it I think he just kicked yeah, the ball and maybe the, the last 10 minutes is like he's yeah. after pushing up himself but that's when they were desperate at that stage they'd gone three like Colin O'Rourke was desperately dropping back into midfield around that stage you know like I mean Chase Mead didn't play well at all like you'd have to say they just did not play well and they kicked they were still in the game like amazingly they were still in the game but Bernard Bernard Flynn had that terrible wide um, that he won a free himself and he went off his left. It might have been a tight angle for Stafford, but that would have sent him in, you know, level at half time. Like, I mean, and they missed some bad chances in the second half as well. Like, the big one, the big miss that they made was uh, Brian Stafford with that free at the end. Because yeah. that, that was a well kickable free for Brian Stafford, a well kickable one. And the way that ruined it is Mead won the very next kick out and Tommy Dowd went for a goal because they were still two down. That game had a draw written all over it if Stafford had got that free. Yeah, and like you know, no one referees back then as well. They definitely would have played for that draw, but like that was the the killing of the game. And actually, Stafford just missed a few in that second half where you're thinking, oh my god, like you know, they sort of kicked themselves out of it. And it's amazing to think that they kicked themselves out of it because they were so bad in the in the entire game. But I think Cork missed their their own chances in the first half. And actually, like. Definitely, they would have just kicked that point, and it would have been a draw because it was, I don't know if you noticed, but there were 13 seconds of normal time left whenever Cork got their last free 
And then they took it. They took it about 30 seconds later because obviously they were wasting time. And then the ref blew it up. So he didn't even play any injury time. No. And, you know, if Neve had it just instead of, instead of Dowd having to go for that goal, he had just kept it over, it would have been game over. I think it was 13 wides to Mead. Cork had six. And in the end, like Colin O'Rourke had two bad wides off his left. You know, Flynn had a bad one from play. Colin Kyle scored a great point and then had a. I don't know what he was trying to do. Did he try to. Was he trying to punt it to, to Bernard Flynn or was he trying to kick a point? I don't know. It, would, it just looked very awkward. But in fairness to Colin Kyle, he made a big difference. He came on at halftime for Colin Brady. And Colin Brady and PJ Gillick weren't at the races in the half hour line. No, no, they weren't. And uh, like Kyle, it was definitely a good, a good change. I don't know what he was doing with that one. I think they were just all in the habit of lumping the ball. <laughs> you know, I don't even think anybody would have thought twice about that at the time. But um, Brady, like, probably could have. I never liked to see a man coming off in the first half, but just wasn't giving them anything. And like you know, the Cork middle third was dominating, so he just needed a change in there. And I think Dowie probably could have come on. Like obviously we knew what he what he brought down like later in the years and stuff, but like just he should have been making those changes earlier. Yeah. I think. Well he he was twenty then. Like I was interested to see what age Tommy Dowd was in nineteen ninety and why he was a sub. Was Tommy, Tommy Dowd at twenty. Surely like I mean that he should have been brought on sooner. Like, you know, for PJ Gillick maybe or whoever um wasn't really far. I think he came on for David Beggy, who was having a very uh quiet game by his standards but you'd imagine Tommy Dowd would have added a bit of industry to the half forward line you know you don't want to be too critical looking back you know 20 years ago but there was definitely geez me just it's amazing how you'd say me just did not perform at all Cork played better me had 13 wise to Cork 6 and Cork won the game <laughs> but it is like we thought we looked at the Sonny, or not, the Down v Meave game the next year in, in 91. And, you know, like that's, that's two years in a row now, like after Meave, I had already won it twice. And I'm looking at them sort of fairly unimpressed by it all. Like, you know, they, they have the great players, but that, that's two games that they just didn't perform them. And yet somehow they were in both games with a chance to equalise at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even but like, the Tommy Dowd thing, like, he was only 20 but like <laughs> he was still a, like a bulldozer of a man and it said in a little I liked a lot of graphics that was coming up with their height and their weight but it said he was only 12 stone and I was like oh, come on like he's at least 13 and a half there. <laughs> you know he looked massive yeah no well, he's always well built but you're right that's a weird one with Mead in that like you know they just stayed in games back then but like it's not easy watch one or two games you know and make yeah. judgments on these players even though Jerry McEntee was back to his fetching best even though he wasn't as good as the next year but he still caught a couple of spectacular ones man that man could get up and catch a ball there's nothing honestly like he's become one of my favourite players of all time (laughs) there's nothing more beautiful than seeing Jerry McEntee just jumping from about 10 yards behind and gliding across there he just just throws his body into things he throws his body off people he's always in the right place he cuts out a lot of ball like I am I've got a season ticket to the Jerry McEntee festival like he's he's a super player but it's it's, it's gas like I mean Gaelic football back then was like hurling you know, you just got the ball, you cleared your lines and some lads fought and scrapped for it. And the odd time then you get a ball that would be picked out nice. But most of it was clearances. And even the free, like it's gas with the freeze off the ground. Like, I mean, like you had Shea Fahey and you had Liam Hayes, Jerry McIntyre fetching balls that we'd be used to seeing being caught in midfield or fetching these on the on the, the yeah. 21 metre line because, you know, everyone's in there waiting for this free to be lodged in. Like it's gas really, isn't it? Like, I mean, it was a different world but it was more it, there's no doubt it was more gladiator stuff and it was way it was way more physical than it is now yeah but but, but you're, it was like hurling without the, the right equipment do you know what I mean so like they were playing this game without a ball that could go that far and yeah so it seemed a bit pointless at the same sounds as well you know when a player intercepted it and then blasted it away the crowd cheered because Big it was cheer. like it's away from danger and now we've got a chance and I actually think the way that game was yeah, was why McIntyre was so good because he read it so well and it was easy to read because he knew it was being launched so he always just dropped off 10 metres away from his man and I think most of his catches were always around his own 45 yeah in around there like I mean even hurling has moved like hurling coaches would look at Gaelic football then going what are you doing lads like hurling now doesn't even launch it like that hurling tries isn't it mad like like how it's just evolved and it's more based on appreciate the fact that you have the ball 
and how that, you know, even throughout the 90s, it was getting more of a balance. And we keep analysing, I think, the 0, zero to 10 was where we saw the best balance of holding on to the ball, giving good ball in and better play. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I watched... Um it's obviously a Derry game. It was Derry v Dublin in the quarterfinal in 2007, and I was just thinking, ah, oh, football peaked at this stage. Like you know, it was just it was thrilling. There was no stupid yeah. ball. It was quick, you know, and it was man on man as well. But it was good balls. It was really tough for the cornerbacks and stuff. And yeah, it was uh, it was just accelerating stuff. And uh, but like I think when you look at just something like the block, it, it really does sort of sum up how much the game's evolved because that's. Like that's changed because of both teams in a way. Like you know, where defenders are always dropping off in the position and not giving you a chance to kick it, and they're not there to block. But also, the guy with the ball is not giving you a chance to block because he doesn't want to be caught in possession and he's hand passing it off. And you know, so like that's one thing to show you how far away the game is now. And what was really interesting is the crowd were so wowed I thought back then by a few hand passes struck together because it looked very slick you know whereas now we're all like ah oh, <laughs> we're all fed up with it whereas back then it was like ooh like you know and you sort of worked your way through your crowd and you kicked it in then. yeah and they all like those illegal hand passes who was it Mayo we were commenting on for that All-Ireland that liked that underhanded underhanded one when they did hand pass it was a, a hand pass that would be illegal now yeah, and it seemed to be a lot of balls just sort of picked off the ground. I don't know if that was just me, but it just looked like a lot of balls just being stroked off the ground and nobody, like that. I think actually it's funny enough that Colin O'Neill one was the only one for off the ground that I can remember in these classic games. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Right, Conan, we'll leave it there and we'll come back with performance of the weekend. fellas follow me and not just Cork lads you know what I mean mm. uh, it happens it happens yeah. and, and it does happen yeah. but I'll tell you one thing it's a lonely spot and the best thing you can do is keep moving and I thought Connolly yeah. looked to be trying to do yeah. that the last time yeah. the camera show doesn't look great yeah there was um, maybe if they could say it was theatrical or whatever but like the reality is that there was contact and um, I wasn't trying to win a penalty I was trying to go out and win the ball you know actually it's funny your man Conan what's your name on, the, on your programme like I, I was wondering if he had the same match as me. He was kind of making out Terry, but unlucky to lose like. All right, so performance of the weekend, and the first nomination has to be Shea Fahey. Um, four points from play, um, all superb points. Like, I mean, the fetching, the fielding. He had a brilliant block on, on PJ Gillick. Um, like, I mean, it was just an all-round outstanding performance. And this is a Shea Fahey three years younger than the outstanding performance we saw him put in in 1993, um, Conan. So, like, in our heads, Anthony Toll is the big dog in town. And then you realise Anthony Toll probably had a, was probably thinking, geez, this Shea Fahey now has been on the go for the last, you know, eight years. <laughs> He's seasoned. And Anthony Toll would be like, geez, I'm under pressure here. <laughs> yeah, and like, sure, he scored two points against Derry in the 93 final as well, like two, two lovely points. Um, and that, the first one he scored in this game against uh, Meave was, it really summed up because it was a class score. It was like from beyond the 45, top of his laces. He caught the ball, carried it in, and just put it on the run. Yeah. On the run. And it was just after Colin O'Neill had missed a free. And it looks like, you know, like Derek Canning was talking about that. That won't do his confidence any good. And the camera shot to Colin O'Neill, he was shaking his head and he was rubbing his hair. and Looked like it did affect him. Like, you know, for God's sake, it was an easy free, but then Fahid catches the next ball and puts it over, and that's forgotten about Corker in the lead and their, their motor. Yeah, and the other one was from this point two was from an angle. The two points in the second half were were two brilliant points off the inst off the inside. One was a huge thunderous one, and the other was a nice little clever short free from Larry Tompkins, and he just turned and put it over the bar. Like four points out of the highest um, you know, out of the very top drawer, out of 11 from your midfielder. Like, I mean, I'm going to talk about other good performances here, but I think it's very, very obvious who um, <laughs> the man of the match in this one was for. Like, he was just head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah, and, they, and you mentioned the, you know, the midfielders being back at the 21 and outside their own goals and stuff. And, like, he, he was there. Like, he was the most important player for Cork in that regard, especially... 
Uh, in the last 10 minutes when Cork had their whole full forward line off and they were just sort of back to the wall seeing the game out it was Fahey that was there as the rock at the back you know and it was giving them that drive still through the middle and dictate attacking like yes he got all those little class scores and the big scores but you know again to go back to that 93 final where he clipped one on the outside of his boot as well he was just a player who who did have it all in there to home hold I suppose yeah no he definitely was like I mean and the, one of the greatest thing about Shea Fahey's brilliant performances from Cork from a leash man is that he's actually from Kildare <laughs> so they actually like this hurts Kildare people that Larry Tompkins and Shea Fahey left and they left within a year of each other obviously Larry Tompkins story is that he emigrated to America and he got friendly with um, he got friendly with some players from Cork and he ended up transferring when he came back he spent a year out in New York and then came back and started living in living in in Castlehaven in Cork and Shea Fahey was in the army I think or a guard or something and he was transferred down there it was a more regular transfer I think he works for Musgroves now he doesn't work there at all anymore so like I mean it's crazy the two two of Cork's greatest ever players weren't from Cork and if we're being honest there is not a hope Cork would have won those All-Irelands without Larry Tompkins and Shea Fahey no, I don't think so. And I think, you know, obviously the quality they bring and the, and the leadership that they bring, but even just that that mentality, you know, maybe they, they over-egged it, I don't know, but just that trying to get Meath into people's heads. Like, you know, in that, in that book that I talked about, Double Double, they were, they, they, they described Meath as a freight train coming down the tracks and Cork have to be ready for them because, because they knew if we want to win an All-Ireland, we have to get over Meath. So getting that into their heads and maybe bringing that outsider's perspective into the Cork camp helps yeah. a lot in schools for Cork. I think that Niall Catalan deserves a mention because he started brilliantly on O'Rourke. Now, again, it would, these were backs balls, but Niall Catalan had the unenviable job of marking Mead's, you know, most effective forward. And I thought he battled hard. Like, he's a hardy whore and he was just getting stuck in the whole time with Rourke. And that was a great battle right throughout the game. Mm, and you talk about O'Rourke's, you know, two wides. He hit them under serious pressure from Callahan as well. He didn't. He didn't look at the post. He probably didn't think he had time. That's what. But that's what good defenders make you feel like. He feel like he can't look. He can't dally. He has to act now. And O'Rourke tried to swing both of them over his shoulders rather than face up to Callahan. And we know what O'Rourke brought to, to me. Like you know, we saw it the next year when he came on. Like you know, just that drive that he has and the way he can get through a couple of bodies. But he didn't try that with Callahan. He didn't have the opportunity. Yeah, I, I know. I completely agree. Mix uh, Slockham. It's the weirdest name. I never heard of him. Like he's wing back on the Cork um, team. All the other names you recognise, you know. But like, I mean, Mix Slockham. I'd never, I'd never heard of before. But he had a brilliant second half. And in fairness to him, he wasn't another man that liked to launch it. He liked to play his tastier ball and like ball kind of in the forwards' favour. And he did really well on David Beggy, who funnily enough had switched over into his wing in the first half as well. So I think he deserves a mention too. Yeah, and I think Biggie had a seven minutes purple patch where he just had a couple of driving runs that were dangerous looking. But yeah. when I saw that, it almost like hit home what a good game Slocum was having because Biggie was out of it before then. As you say, he was lucky to to not come off as well, you know, as, as well as his opposite number, Brady. But yeah, Slocum like was another example of those players who was playing through the lines, like and using Tompkins and using McCarthy and using Fahey and instead of just kicking ball away I think in contrast to me there was one time where Cork lumped it and there was nobody Jerry Canny mentioned it in commentary there was nobody inside the 45 but whoever it was just got the ball and kicked it into the full forward line and yeah. there was just two Cork players waiting for me one of David Beggy's good runs it was a brilliant run from uh, I think Beggy set up Liam was it Liam Hayes who got fouled just outside the penalty area which was yeah. a huge thing because there was bare, there was only um, maybe half a foot in whether that was a penalty or not yeah, but I think I think the ref got it right. Like he got it, it right, yeah. He got it right. Free, yeah. I think Kevin Foley deserves a mention too because, like, I mean, he did a great job at Larry Tompkins. Um, in the in the three finals with Mead in eighty seven, eighty eight, and the replay, he'd scored six, eight, and eight. And he only got four frees this time. I don't think he had a shot on goals, um, Larry Tompkins. Now, I think he might have carried a slight injury into the game. They mentioned that in the commentary. But Kevin Foley wouldn't have been a regular. He was a regular wing back. Um, I think Harnan was, uh, Liam Harnan was was injured and he wasn't playing centre back. But Foley did a very good job. And especially the first couple of times Larry Tompkins headed into midfield and got on a few balls. Foley started following him in then and kind of pretty much took Tompkins out of the game, I thought, in the second half. 
He did. I think Tompkins actually had one shot at the goals in open play and Foley came flying across and blocked us. It was a it was an amazing block and it was uh it was a real win for, for man marking, like you know, and, and knowing who the danger man is as well, like, you know, rather than everybody following the ball, he just followed Tompkins and then like he thought that Tompkins had got away and then Foley was right on him and blocked it down and just a, a great a great job on him, like you know. He was there with shoulders as well at the right time. He just that was a commanding number six performance from him, and yeah, probably a shame for him. Like he's probably the, the best of the Meath players, and probably didn't deserve to be on the losing side. Yeah, I think Martin O'Connell deserves a mention as well. You see, Martin, Martin, Dave Barry was taken off, and he was man of the match the previous year in the Ireland final. And a hardy looking fella, Dave Barry was. Martin O'Connell would do my head in, and the amount of ball he did, he ended up kicking away. But look, that was the game at the time, so you can't. Um, you can't take it away from him. But the amount of time this man's on the ball and the amount of tackles he gets in and he's able to dispossess fellas. And, like, I mean, he's just, he was a phenomenal defender. And I do think if he was playing in in the more modern game, he would turn into, you know, he would be able to fix his distribution. It's just, that's what he was encouraged. That was what he was encouraged to do. So he was he was following his brief out to the letter of the law. It's just, we're looking at going, geez, Martin, you don't have to stick every one of them off the middle of your bootlaces. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's the exact same as uh, Tomas Shades when I was in five and we were watching that carry to own game back and you know Tomas Shades is one of my favourite players of all time but just kept getting the ball and kicking it <laughs> just kicking it in high and there was no Kieran Donaghy but they just kept kicking it in because that's what he was told to do and like Tomas Shades like you know Martin O'Connell was so imposing in the game and he got on so much ball and I think you're right like you know if he was told something different to do than he would do it but you saw every single ball from me was just being hoofed in and O'Rourke and even Bernard Flynn none of them were given out about no, it like, no. and that's the incredible, the incredible thing I think one like they never complained they knew that was just the way it was and I think one ball was launched into O'Rourke it went so long it went over his head and Bernard Flynn came in behind him and caught it after it bouncing and it was like right well you know I'll, I'll have to work off some sort of bloody ball here yeah, Rook actually caught one over the end line as well at one stage. Yeah. <laughs> like it, was just, it was chaos. Like it was just kicking in and let the, let those boys at it. So probably like, you know, Sean Boyner was thinking Martin O'Connell would have been one of his better players. We have him down here for that. But he probably didn't think that Martin O'Connell was wasting ball. He was doing as he was asked. Yeah, no, it was unbelievable stuff to watch. But look, the performance of the weekend has to go to Shea Fahey. Like we mentioned, um, just completely all over the place. And to think that to think that him and Larry Tompkins transferred to Cork, it's actually, it's beyond belief. Within a year of each other and won two All-Irelands, four Munsters, they ended up breaking up the Kerry dominance um, in Munster. And I don't care. Cork wouldn't have been doing that without them. So, like, I mean, they will forever be loved down there. It'd be interesting to to know what it's like if they ever go for a pint up in Kildare or how that's kind of viewed <laughs> then. Because I suppose when Larry and Shea were still playing um, in the early 90s, Kildare lost a couple of Leinster finals to Dublin. Like, two players like them, like, I know Mead were probably dominating, you know, the late 80s. That Kildare, they might not have made much of a difference with Kildare but maybe in the early 90s when Mick O'Dwyer took over Kildare they could have made a difference um, for them but anyways listen that's not for me or you to worry about <laughs> I was going to ask is there any other county that you could have seen yourself playing for? Uh, not really no no. Oh, look, look I'm always on record saying I'd love to hear Hill 16 chanting my name alright so that would mean <laughs> I'd have to play for Dublin but uh, yeah no not really I don't think you really think about that like I mean uh, look I'd never transfer club either um, you know if I'm being honest oh shit um, I did <laughs> I think, should I pull them up here <laughs> <laughs> yeah but look I didn't do, I didn't uh, wouldn't transfer county let's say that uh, maybe I just didn't didn't, uh, didn't get enough offers <laughs> <laughs> right listen before I keep talking complete nonsense we'll leave it there we'll be back on Monday and we'll do another um, we'll do another nostalgia show so we'll talk to you then good luck I'm not finished yet it took me a long time to get here both parents have, have spoken with each other and uh and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. But these fellas will get such a shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their f***ing houses for f***ing years.